morning, we will be looking at the first four verses in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, that's in the later part of your New Testament, um, before James and Peter. And so if you kind of find your way there, we would appreciate it. I wanted to say, like, uh, I appreciate our worship team all the time for all the songs that we get. Um, But a particular... Hello, daughter. (laughs) But of a particular... um, Joy and a kind of, I don't know, appreciation I have is for this new Christmas hymn that we have been singing, this new Christmas song, uh, Come All Ye Unfaithful. Right? Because if you guys aren't familiar with it, especially if you're visiting, and we, we've been singing that a few times in our Sunday mornings uh, uh, in the month of December, and so many of us have gotten to know um, just, just the treasure of that song. Um, but the reason why I bring that up is because uh, uh, all of us, or at least me, and I think many of you have expressed the same, when it first splashes up on the screen, your mind immediately thinks, come all ye faithful, right? Oh, come all ye faithful. Like you go immediately into that mode, and um, it's a delightful moment when one of our, um, when one of our worship uh, people, and I won't, I won't name her, her, her initials might be Sarah, but I just, you know, um, and uh, she actually started singing that, which is, which is wonderful, because that's it. I was actually joining in and singing along, come all ye faithful with her, and then when she goes, oh, I'm so sorry, and she goes back, I was like, taken by surprise for a moment. Well, th- I bring this up because the, the lyrics for um, come all ye unfaithful is so delightfully and instructively good. If you don't know the story, and so because I like that song, I looked up the story, and the songwriter, she tells of how that song came to be. Um, it was a particular time, it was a particular Christmas at her church, and uh, she's usually part of the worship service, etc. She said she couldn't do it, but it had been a period of time where she had gone through a lot that year. She had miscarried twins. They're in financial difficulties. Um, she's struggling with bitterness and all of this stuff. And they sang as one of the many songs that they would sing at Christmas, um, Come All You Faithful. And she says as she was singing that, she just felt the depth of the weight of her shame. She didn't feel like, you know, like one of these faithful. And so later that night, or maybe later that, that week, I don't know, um, that's when the lyrics of Come All Ye Unfaithful float out. The idea that, that it is not because we are faithful that the Lord accepts us, right? But He comes for us despite our struggling and our difficulties and our brokenness. And as we celebrate Christmas, I just want us to be reminded that that's what Christmas is. It's a reminder that, that Christ's incarnation, His willingness to take on flesh and to fulfill a promise of redemption and forgiveness of sin and a reclamation of a broken humanity, that that promise was fulfilled and began to be fulfilled in His incarnation, in the moment that He was born, man, very man. God, very God, taking on man, very man. And that began what was necessary for His gift of salvation because He had to be a man to die for men and women. But he has to be more than a man. He must be eternal. He must be divine so that 
that his death, right? Because one man's death might atone for one other man. But that his death might be efficacious, effective for all who have placed their faith in him. And so the, the story of Christmas is the story of Christ. The story of, of, of what we celebrate at Christmas is really the Christ must. And as you guys know, Christ must, must, comes from the Spanish Christ and more of him. Moss. That's, I totally made that up. That's not, that is not true at all, right? Like, I, I thought that would be cool, but it's not true, right? Christmas is a celebration of Christ and his gift for us. And his gift for us means that all of you, you are welcome to Jesus Christ. You don't have to come having fixed yourself. If you're sitting here this morning and you're recognizing your own sinfulness or, or maybe your, your life's brokenness or all the difficulties or all the bitterness that you struggle with, with all the, 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 the tendencies to, to self-atone or to be self-righteous or to judge others or maybe to be loose and to be angry at the judgment of others, whatever issues you have, you are welcome to come to the cross and lay them down. Christmas is the story of welcome. It is about God, right, reaching down to sinners to say, this is how I have loved you, by sending my son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, and to be raised as evidence that both sin and death have been overcome by faith in Christ. So as we look at uh, this passage this morning, it's a simple one in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. It's about Christmas and the revelation of Christ. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> we'll be looking at really two parts, just that Jesus is the finale of God the Father and that Jesus is the fullness of God the Father. And we'll be just kind of walking through the centrality of Christ at Christmas time. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the celebration of Christmas and all that it has for us. We thank you that we who are unfaithful, broken, and hurting are welcome to receive eternal life in Christ. And we thank you that that began the, all of the promises and hopes Right? All, everything that has been promised from the past, everything that, that, that the, the people of faith looked forward to and anticipated with great hope began to be fulfilled in the moment that Christ was born. So in this Christmas day, Sunday, we, we just want to acknowledge our Savior and ask that your, our hearts would be filled by the truth of your scriptures and remembering who Jesus is, the, the fullness of God, the final word of God. Everything that we might desire God to tell us and to be for us has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus the Christ. So we praise you for him and ask that our eyes would be open to the good things your scriptures will reveal now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, is really the opening introduction to this letter to the Hebrew Christians. And if we want anything by way of background uh, to the Hebrew Christians, they had already suffered some persecution, and more persecution was coming. So they were a people, a Christian group, under great distress. And yet, you would think that if you were writing to Christians that were under great distress in another place... You might just encourage them to keep on going, to be faithful, to endure. And there is some of that. But clearly, the main and central theme of all of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is sufficient. That he is enough. That that in the midst of all your struggles and everything that is not working out the way that you had hoped, it's a reminder that you have something that is more than sufficient. That in Christ, you have found a sufficiency, a worthiness, a praiseworthiness that satisfies your soul and that could keep you even when everything goes wrong. And so what would the opening words of such a letter be? And these are the opening words. It is about Jesus as the finale, the, the final word of God the Father and Jesus as the fullness everything that we could desire from our God and Father. So we begin, if we get one of these to go, we begin. We begin with Jesus, the finale of God. I I think these aren't working. I'll just have to look back at Gabe, all right? Yes. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, it says there, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so Jesus, when I say He's the finale of God, I mean that, that according to the opening verse, verse and a half, of, uh, of the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is the final statement, the final revelation, the final thing that God has desired to speak into humanity. And if you think of it this way, right? If you want God to speak to you, and maybe, maybe you guys do, right? Sometimes you pray and say, Lord, you know, which, which, you know, which path should I take? You know, should I become this, you know, in terms of my future career, or should I become this? Should I marry this guy? Or should I marry this guy, right? Like, like maybe there's, there's decisions you, you need to make and you wish that God would speak to you. Well, God has spoken to you. Maybe not in the particulars and that clearly or audibly. Yeah, you should, you know, eat the bread pudding or, you know, or you should, you should make a left turn here or anything like that. He may not have spoken to you in that particular way, but he has clearly communicated us to us in the person of his son. See, verse 1 says, Long ago, at, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It begins by talking about how in the past, right, notice the uh, long ago and at many times and in many ways. So in other words, you stretch back into history, right, in particular the history that's recorded in the scriptures, and you recognize that God has spoken. He has, his, he has communicated to people in many many times, many ways, in a lot of different kind of revelatory um, patterns. Um, we speak in theology about progressive revelation, that as you read through the scriptures from Genesis onward, that there is a progress, there, there is things added. It doesn't mean that we go from truth to better truth, right? 
It means that we just keep on adding to that which has already been revealed. And so, so there's a progression from promise to fulfillment. And the idea is that in many times, in different seasons, in different occasions, and in many ways, I mean, think about the many ways in the Old Testament that God speaks to his people. He spoke to Moses in a burning bush that wasn't actually being destroyed by the fire, right? He spoke to that, to that nation in the wilderness um, above, on Sinai with thunder and fire and earthquakes, etc. God spoke to Elijah in a small voice, right? Which is cool because he said all these other things and he's like, no, that, that's not where God is speaking to you. And God spoke to him in a small voice. He spoke to Balaam, the false prophet, through a talking donkey. And that has, has you know, turned into a series of movies right? Which is ridiculous. But a talking donkey, that's crazy, right? God has prophesied about the future through like dreams of Pharaoh and others, Nebuchadnezzar. He's condemned individuals by literally writing on a wall, right? Just, just a hand writing on a wall. So different times, different ways, different means, and even in terms of our written scriptures, different, different genres of literature, whether it's prose or poetry, through songs or narratives, right? There's so much stuff that has been the various ways that God has communicated to us His divine truth. And so it says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? Long ago, many ways, many times, he spoke to, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and he has spoken to us by his son. So this is God's ultimate word. Christ is God's ultimate word to us. Uh, could you take a look at the parallel between verses 1 and 2, right? Long ago, in verse 2, says, in these last days. Right? God spoke to our fathers, and verse 2 says, He has spoken to us. He spoke by the prophets in many times, many ways, but in verse 2 it says, He has spoken to us by His Son. See, the, the parallel is intentional. It means that, that, that God has spoken in the past. All of that is aimed at the revelation of Jesus Christ today. It is in these final days in former days, he spoke in all kinds of different interesting ways. In these final days, he spoke to us singularly in one person. In these final days, he, in the past, he has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. In these final days, he has spoken through us to us through his son. In fact, it doesn't just say that he has spoken to us by his son or by the son. It literally says in son. Why? Because there's an emphasis on the character, the essential quality of the sonship of Jesus. That God has spoken to us, not in a son, one of many sons, right? Not in the son, just, just to speak of a son that is more particular, which is true, and, and Scripture does speak of the son with a, with a definite article. But here, the point is that there have been such a variety of ways that God has, has revealed himself, has spoken to his people, has tried to convince his people to trust in him. But in these final days, meaning in the final chapter of human history, there is a son. And he qualitatively is everything that God has desired to speak. 
John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The term is logos. And the Word was, God, was with God. And the Word was God. The Word, the logos, the communication of God, right? His speech was embodied in such a way that he was both with God and he was, at the same time, God himself. And verse 14 of that same chapter in John 1 says that this word, this communication, this divine logos became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the final revelation. He is the fullness of revelation. He is everything God would speak to us so that we might understand who we are and who He is. Think about the words of, uh, of that great Christmas uh, verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Um, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Elder Danny walked us through some of those already. But he's a wonderful counselor. It means that the, the, the term wonder has to do with that which is miraculous or supernatural. He has divine wisdom as the wonderful counselor. Mighty God. He has divine power. Right? Everlasting Father. He has a perpetual fatherhood. It, it means that he cares for us as a father should. He's the Prince of Peace. That he is the one that ushers in and embodies what peace might be between God and man and man with each other. All of that is the fullness of everything that God would want to communicate to us found in a child born in a manger. The fulfillment of all the promises that God has made. You know that, that, uh, that uh, um, Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem? There's one line in there that I thought was intriguing. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Listen to this. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears. I love it because it's trying to communicate that everything that you might long for, that you're saying, you know what? I know that this is not what my life needs to be. Right? I know there's better. I know there's more fulfillment relationally. I know that there's joy to be had. I know there's something better than what I am experiencing now. That, that is hope. That is, that is aimed forward. That is a longing to be met. And then, but the second part is interesting and gives, gives us great insight into, I think, the wisdom of the writer of that particular hymn. Not just the hopes of all the years, but the fears. There are anxieties that we have. There are uncertainties that, that we struggle with. There are so many things that unglue us because, because, to be truthful, we are not God. We are mortal. And in our broken, mortal, limited way, we find fears to be the common experience of humanity. We are both longers, right? We long and desire and, and hope for things. And we are fear mongers. We, we are scared of what might be what has been, what could be again, the uncertainties of it all, our fragility, right? All of that combined makes us what we are. And the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. At the moment that Jesus is born, all that God has promised, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the promise that, that there will be one 
a seed of Eve that will crush the serpent's head. Like from that promise onward, right? Like every promise of salvation, of hope fulfilled, of fears assaged, right? All of those promises are met in a person. And that's what we mean by Jesus as the finale of God and as God's ultimate word. The second part, right, is creation's ultimate purpose. Jesus is not merely God's ultimate word to us, but as far as creation is concerned, he becomes then the ultimate purpose for which all things exist. It says, long ago, in many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then look at the last part of verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this baby that is born, this man-God, God-man, he becomes then the appointed heir of all things. It reminds us immediately of Psalm 2, where it says, where God speaks and says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, there is an heir. God has appointed an individual to, to inherit or to receive all of creation. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That phrase, all things, encompasses everything in existence. Everything we see, things that we don't see. Things that are super far and huge, things that are super close and invisible because they're so small. Everything is encompassed in the phrase, all things. It implies that Jesus is the final purpose, right? He's the heir, so he's the final purpose for everything that is. Uh, read on in verse 2, and it says, um, Through whom also he created the world. So he is both the creator of everything, right, that is around us, and he is the owner of everything that is around us. John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There is nothing that exists except that Christ has made them, that the second person of the Trinity has made them. So he is its creator, but he is also the one that is to inherit it all. So in Colossians 1, 16, listen to this, For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See, prepositions matter because if everything was created through him, that tells us he's the agency by which everything comes to be, including you. You exist because Christ has declared you to exist. But right, that's through him, through his agency. But what does it mean if everything is for him? It means that everything has been created to be his, to belong to him, to be owned by him, right? To, to, to belong to him, to serve him, to glorify him, to please him. It belongs to him. We give gifts at Christmas time. And let's say that I made something for you, you know, like, you know, the things that your kids make at school and they bring home for Christmas. We have this delightful thing that looks like a zombie snowman, right? That has been painted, I forget which of our 
delightful children painted that, but it's on a little placard, right? And it's in the green background, and it, it looks like ghostly snowman. It, it's just interesting, right? And you look at that, and it was created by somebody. That didn't just accidentally happen. Somebody actually made that. They painted it. You know, they did the best they could, right? And after they painted it, it was created by them. Then it was given. It was given to mom and dad. Mom and dad may not have asked for that thing, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, it is ours. It is given to you, right? So it is made through an agent, and it is made with a purpose for the intention of being a gift for someone. And here, both the agent and the recipient is the same. Jesus is the creator of us all, and he is the one that will receive us all. So that all of creation is both through him and is for him. And just, just, you, you need to understand and hear that for a second, right? The idea that all of creation is for him. Because it means that you are his. You, you are created for him. And when, when all of uh, your life is finished and you appear before the judgment seat of God, the Almighty, the main thing that will condemn you or will save you is not what you did or didn't do. It's not how you lived or didn't live. It will all center around the Son because you are His. You have been created through Him and for Him. So the main question that will either save or condemn you is, what did you make of the Son? Because this is God's finale. This is God's ultimate word. And Christ is creation's ultimate purpose. All of this exists for him, not for us, not for you. And the odd thing is that our chasing of trying to make everything around us for us is usually the main reason why our lives are so miserable. And when we make Christ the main thing for whom all of our existence, right, um, all of our purpose, right, is poured out, that it is for his pleasure for his 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 glory then we find ourselves content as if we are fulfilling life's final purpose jesus is the finale of god secondly right oh, jesus is the fullness of god verses three and four take a look at verse verse three there he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. When we say that Jesus is the fullness of God, I mean that he is not just God, very God, but he is, he is first and foremost God's radiant glory. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is, this is an amazing theological statement because if you understand radiance, brilliance, light. Um, radiance is the sun, right? Radiating, exuding its heat upon us, its light upon us. Reflection is me with the mirror, you know, trying to direct that sunlight into your eyes while you're making a speech. You know what I mean? It's, that, that's a reflection. The moon reflects the sun's light. You get, I'm not telling you anything you guys don't know, right? Right, the moon reflects the sun's light. It, it, it doesn't make its own. The moon is not a, a, a smaller light bulb, right? 
The sun is the glowing heat of a burning ball of fire, right? And the moon on the other side of the sun, or the other side of the earth from the sun, just reflects that light. Christ is not a reflection of the Father's light. He is the very radiance of his glory. It is to say that whatever God's glory is, and the, you know, the, the term comes from things like weight, weightiness, the heaviness, right? The, the severity, the significance of God. Whatever that glory is, Christ is the full radiance of that. We see the person, the face of the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. So he is by definition, right, the source, not a recasting, but the source of the very Godhood of God. This this isn't dialing back Jesus in any way. It is dialing it up. He is saying God, very God, is displayed fully and absolutely in the person of Jesus Christ. Not a reflection, but the actual radiance, the visible light of God's glory, right? God's radiant glory. But not just his radiant glory, God's exact nature. See, verse 3 says he is the, na- he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The idea of an imprint, right, is like um, in those old days they would write a letter and then, you know, they don't fold it up and put it in an envelope, right? They roll up the scroll, they put a piece of wax on it, right, and then they impress upon it their signet ring. And it closes like that scroll by, you know, attaching the end to the rest of the scroll. And it leaves an impression so that if you look at it, you go, okay, who is it, who is it from? You look and you say, oh, it's from that guy's, that guy's signet ring. That impression. Like you, you take a step in the mud, right? And it leaves an impression. That exact impression, that exact imprint of God's nature is Jesus Christ. There's no deeper way or more, more definitive way of saying that he is the exact contours of who God is. That his essential nature, his exact nature, is the nature of God the Father. There is everything in Jesus Christ that is God the Father. And so how does the Trinity work? I don't know. It is a mystery, but it means simply that there is a second person of the Trinity, and yet all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are all one essence, one God. That's exactly what John 1.1 was saying. In the beginning was God's Word. And the Word was with God, beside God, and the Word was God. How can you be both with God and beside God? Well, that is the second person of the Trinity, right? He is fully God, God, very God, light of light, very God of very God. That's the Nicene Creed. Jesus is everything God the Father is. His radiant glory, His exact nature, and God's sustaining power. Look at the third part of verse verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is a great phrase. Um, it says that Jesus upholds the universe. He upholds everything by the word of his power. It, it's great because one, on the one hand, it, it is attempting to explain that all the world, everything that happens, you know, the earth traveling around the sun at a 23 degree angle. Did you know that we travel around the sun at a 23 degree angle? 
And because we do, and because we rotate, and because we're at dis- different distances from the sun, depending on the time of the year, it allows us to have four seasons, different weather patterns that, that, that change right through the year. That variety is given to us by the angle and by the elliptical orbit of the earth around the sun. And we live in Southern California, so it's pretty much all the same, right? Unfortunately. Right? But if you lived a little bit more north, a little bit more south, then you might enjoy kind of the, the full seasons because God has made that variety. He has baked in that variety right, in the way that he has made stuff. But here's the thing. If the earth spun a little bit further, a few miles further at its furthest point from the sun, right, we would careen out into space and we'd all freeze and die. Right? Or let's say the moon was just a little bit closer right, than it is. The moon orbits around us. If it was a little bit closer, then our oceans, right, the tides would be overwhelming and it would come up onto the sea and we'd experience massive flooding everywhere. A little change in this, a little change in that. If we were just a little closer to the sun, everything would burn up and then life on the surface of the planet would die. I mean, there is so many things that are so delicately in balance that keeps the universe running and it's not Mother Nature, right? It is God, very God. He upholds, use the word sustains, everything in the universe by the word of His power. And that, that last part I love. How does He keep everything in the universe going in a manner that He sovereignly desires? He does it by speaking, by the word of His power. If you haven't noticed, how did he do it? You know? Did he go, whew, okay, let me just start. Bang, 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 bang. Right? Did he have all this work to physically do? He spoke. That is a sovereign power of God. He speaks, and reality takes shape. He, he speaks it, and it becomes absolutely physically, you know, um, materially real. He speaks an entire universe into creation. When he says, let there be light, there was never light before then, and then there was light everywhere, right? When when he creates a world, he just says, let there be, let there be, let there be an expanse, let there be foliage, let there be animals, let there be fish and, and birds. Like, it just happens. He speaks, and these things just take place. That is power, not just unprecedented, but unbelievable, And it should be unbelievable because our God is unbelievable. His power is unbelievable. He is is God, very God. And Jesus is the fullness of that God. He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. He, Jesus, is the exact imprint of his nature. And this Jesus, this baby born in a manger for the salvation of sinners, he's the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. He speaks and keeps everything going. And he will speak one day, and everything will stop. And he will recreate the heavens and the earth as he sees fit. Because he owns it all. It is all made through him. It is made for him. And it's this thing by him. But here's the last one. right? He's God's radiant glory. He's God's exact nature. He's God's sustaining power. But he's also God's final word of salvation. Um. The second part of verse 3 says this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It says, when he had made purification of sins. And the way that that is stated, it suggests that, the middle voice suggests that Jesus is the one that himself made purification for sins. Well, how did he do that? How do you get sinners to be purified from their sins? Well, by nature, sin, missing the mark or transgressing, going beyond what is allowable, by nature, sin requires a penalty, right? It's like, it's like any of the sports that we've been consuming, that if you do something illegal, you are hoping that justice happens, especially if it's against your team, right? You want that pass interference call, or you want to hear that offsides, right? You want to see that offsides flag. You, you want to know that if a penalty has been, has been breached, a sin has been committed, that, right, there's a consequence for those things. That's what we call justice. Well, someone needs to make atonement. Someone needs to pay for the sins that are committed. And for human beings, every son of Adam is born with a sin nature. We sin not because... We're good people who occasionally mess up. We sin because that is our nature. It is baked into our being. We don't have to guess whether or not the next child that is born into our membership will be a sinner. Every human being is, save one. And because we are all sinners, the question is, who pays for the penalty of your sins? It is either you in all of eternity, or it's the Son. And here, it's speaking of his ministry, his earthly ministry for us. He was born in a manger. He lived a perfect life. And then he laid down that life like a sacrifice, like the sacrificial animals of the past. He laid down that life to make purification for sins, to make what is filthy, broken, and wrong, to be covered in righteousness, to be declared pure, and unblemished. The unblemished one, right, took on our filth so that the filthy ones might look unblemished to God, the holy judge. So after doing that, after being born, after living that life, after dying on the cross and being risen from the dead, it says, after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sitting down at the right hand of the majesty implies two things. One, you're sitting at the right hand. That makes you the right-hand man, right? You know, like all those old, uh, um, um, I don't know, you watch all, all, all those old kung fu movies and the bad kung fu gang, right? There's a boss, but he usually has a right-hand man. And that seems to be the way the pattern in all bad gangs work, right? There's a boss and a right-hand man. The right-hand man is, is, in that sense, the second in command, but it is the seat of the highest, of the highest honor. It is the person that sits next to the king. So, you know, erase your mind of gangs and think more of, like, royalty. There is a king, and if he's an excellent king, then he will, he will put to his right hand someone that he believes is, is worthy to be at his side, at his honored side, the side where his authority is vested into this individual so that this individual represents the king and the kingdom, right? It's a place of honor, but it's not just that it is a place of honor that is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That part is accurate and true and excellent. 
But it's also interesting that he sat down. Because throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, Jesus will be compared not just to the angels. That's verse 4. How he has become much more superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Right? Meaning the Lord. Um, But he will also be compared to the priesthood. The high priests of the past, the different priests, and how they're constantly, in the history of Israel, their entire life is constantly offering sacrifices, going through the rituals, and doing all the stuff that they have to do. And how different that is from Jesus, who instead of standing, right, working at the altar, rushing blood to blood, sprinkling things, receiving your sacrifice, working through all of that, Jesus has done it, He has made purification of sins. The sacrifice has been offered and accepted, and he sits down. No priest in active duty ever sits down. Maybe for a moment, maybe he sits down because, you know, Jedediah is tired, and then he has to get back up and get right back to work, right? Because it's never-ending. Jesus is sitting enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because it's final. It's done. Salvation has been accomplished. When Christmas happened, When Christ was born, there was a plan that Christ would suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's 1 Peter 3.18. And that plan was fulfilled in Jesus in such a way that it is finished. It is absolutely done. Christ sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father because his ministry of atonement is accomplished. That's why scripture often speaks of the one for all sacrifice. It uses that terminology here in Hebrews. In Hebrews 7, 26, it says, for it was indeed fitting that he should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Similarly, Hebrews 10, 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The story of Christmas, you know, if you, if you like, you know, the Grinch, that's, that's cool. I'm not, I'm not mad at that, right? That's a good story, you know? If you like the Christmas Carol, again, not a bad story. Good. Read that. Enjoy that. Watch the Muppets version, my favorite, right? Like, you know, if you like the different things that Christmas brings you, the warm feelings and the family gathering and the friends being together, that's all good. That's excellent. Those aren't wicked things. But if you miss the main point of Christmas, the Christ in Christmas, you've missed the entire point of his birth. He was born so that he could live the life you couldn't live, so that he could die the death that you should have died, so that when he is raised and enthroned and seated at the right hand of God, it is finished, that if you will place your faith in him, you might find salvation. And not just a salvation where you have to keep on earning it over and over and being very delicate and careful because it's so fragile and you might lose it. But he has done it all. He has paid for your sins, your past sins, the sins you might commit today, today, on Christmas Sunday, and the sins that you might commit in the rest of this life on earth. 
He has done it all because he is God's final salvation. Christmas is a revelation. It's a revealing. It's it's the letting us see God's wonderful plan of salvation through his son, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the finale of God, God's ultimate word, creation's ultimate purpose, and Jesus, the fullness of God, his radiant glory, exact nature, sustaining power, and God's final salvation. Listen, if you haven't, if you haven't gone so far as to think about your relationship to God, recognize that according to the scriptures, that relationship revolves singularly around one person. Who is Jesus Christ to you? And what does that mean for your life? We would ask you to ask questions, to explore, and to bow your knee to Jesus Christ, to confess your sins, ask for his righteousness, right, and be found forgiven and your salvation final and true. That's the story of Christmas. I want to thank you for being here. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, even as uh, we think on this Christmas day, of that moment that Christ came into the world, we know that that began everything. And we praise you that that was your wisdom, your plan from the very beginning. That we who were sinners and broken and indeed were unfaithful have found a means of reconciliation, of being forgiven and made pure. Because you have sent your own son to live that perfect life and to die on the cross to be our perfect sacrifice so that we might know what it is to be forgiven and righteous in your eyes. We thank you for that gift of salvation. We thank you for the celebration of the birth of Jesus and the joy that that can bring us. Help us to place our hope, our joy, our affections on the right things in this life so that we find ourselves satisfied and eternally grateful for the goodness of God through his son. We pray in his son's name.